If you've got your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 26 to 33. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. And as you're, you're getting there, I figured, you know what? I'm going to give you uh, an update. I know updates are really, really important and crucial. Uh, last week I shared um, my heart about the Duncan line where you just don't pay. I ain't paying for the person that's behind me. Well, this morning I'm in the Duncan line. And I see someone in front of me, Redeemer personnel. And I think to myself, oh, man, they might pay for me now. <laughs> so then I think maybe I'm going to go ahead and jack up the price a bit and get all the stuff I want. You know, I'm going to have a sandwich, coffee. You know what? Let's throw in two dozen and just leave them out in the hallway. But I'm glad I didn't because they didn't pay for me. So I would have been left with that bill. I don't want to shame the person and let them know because they knew it was me. They knew I was behind them, and they still didn't pay. But we'll all forgive Pastor Joe for that. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oops. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. You know, we've been looking about uh, kingship and kingdom, and we've been spending a lot of time this week sort of trying to kind of pray through, okay, what does it mean that, that Jesus is king and we're part of this kingdom and what is the kingdom of God? What are the entry requirements? What are, what are some of the things that we should be looking at when we talk about kingdom? And then I start thinking through, well, as an American, and, and I don't think I'm the only one, but I, I think I see it within our culture, there's a, there's a bit of an aversion to kings. You know, we don't, really like talk, we don't really like having a king. Well, we didn't like having a king. We made sure of that, you know. And, you know, part of it, though, is, is because we see that these, some, a lot of these kings are, are tyrants, they're unjust, they're oppressive. The thing is, they're, they're humans. They're sinful, they're fallen. But we have this aversion to kings. And, and not only do we have this aversion to the monarchy, we actually mock sometimes the monarchy. You know, if you've got British friends, you know the 4th of July, you're sending them texts. I know I am, I do it. I said it to all my British friends. I'm like, ha, 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 sucker, we're celebrating being gone of you. And it's not just about the fireworks and, and the barbecue, but I like to mock my British friends. And I know some of you do as well because I'm on those text threads. But there's one thing about, like, there's, there's something else that came along with kind of overthrowing the monarchy and overthrowing this uh, a, a king's rule over us. There's this American individualism that we really hold on to as Americans. And there's part of it that, that's, that's beautiful and it's good. Like we have this identity and we want to thrive and we want to flourish and, and we'll make our own way. We're going to push through. It doesn't matter where you start from, but, but if you work hard, you push hard, you can make something of yourself. And there's this individualism that, like, I, I need to fight for my own. I need to do what I have to do. I need to claw my way out. I don't want any other th authority over me. I'm not going to allow a king. I'm not going to allow the government. I'm not going to allow anybody to tell me what I can and can't do. I will live my life the way I want to live my life. And as, Amer as Americans, we, we cherish a piece of that. But see, the danger within the church is importing those, uh, those, those American individualism, importing that, that sense of rebellion and rebelliousness against government and authority when we import that onto God's kingdom. 
Sometimes I think as believers, we struggle with the notion of God's kingdom and God's authority because we look at the present authority and the present system and import our feelings into that. We might not say it in those ways, but we functionally live in rebellion. When it comes to sin and when it comes to rule, when it comes to following God's ways and God's law, when it comes to seeking after others' good, and when it comes to, when it comes to maybe laying down our lives and our, priv- our, our privileges and our preferences for our brother and sister, for our neighbors. How dare me? I don't have to lay down anything. I have every right to do what I want. Well, King Jesus says otherwise. And if we are part of this kingdom of God, and we are part of his kingdom, and we say we are his disciples and his followers, then that also means that we are to live according to his standards, rules, and tone. But if you've been anywhere online, or just anywhere in, the, in our community, in our present Christian community, the cultural Christianity, you'll see there's quite some aversion to the ways that God has called us to live, to live under his rule and his reign. In our text this morning, what I want us to see is this, that even though we have this aversion to the monarchy, or we have this aversion to a king, what we're going to see in our text this morning is this, that the promise of a king means the end of our enemies. You see this, this promise of a king, this promise of a king that will, that will be there with us, that will, that will lead us, that will guide us, this promise of a king that will save us and redeem us, this same king means an end of our enemies. And we're going to be looking at this uh, in three, three ways there. And so if you're, uh, if you're one to take notes, here are the kind of three headings that we'll be looking at. First, we're going to be discussing a need, our need of a king. Secondly, how we are served by a king. And third, that we are ruled by a king. The need of a king, served by a king, and ruled by a king. Please pray with me. Father, I ask that you would be with us this morning. That you'd be with us this morning as we look at at your word. Father, I pray that your spirit would already be working on our hearts. You've been working on my heart, on my stubbornness. Father, I pray that you would work on all of our hearts in our stubbornness as we look to to what does it mean to be your follower? What does it mean to be uh, your subject? What does it then mean to to seek after you and to, to live by your standards and your rules? And ultimately, Lord, what does it mean to live with you as our king? Pray that your spirit would, would guide us and convict us and encourage us. We pray this all in your name. Amen. So the promise of a king means the end of our enemies. And let's go ahead and take a look at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Lazarus. So we'll stop there. When we talk about this sixth month, 
right? Earlier in the chapter, we see this, the narrative about uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and how, how the angel Gabriel also went and said, hey, you're going to have a son. You are going to have a child. And Zechariah couldn't understand, how, how is this going to happen? We're, we're barren. There's just no way. But God being God will always fulfill his word and what he has said. So in the sixth month of, of, of uh, Elizabeth's pregnancy, of John the Baptist, Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And later we, we see this Nazareth that, as this lowly place. It's kind of this, this uh, they even say, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? Why there? To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. To this young girl, maybe 13 to 15 years old, a virgin, and she's, she's engaged now to this man named Joseph of the house of David. So here we see that this Joseph, this Joseph then has, is comes from a lineage. He comes from the royal line, the succession, this Davidic line to the throne. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And later says, uh, uh, O favored one, and later says, You have found favor. So why is that though? Why is it that she has this favor? Has she been, has she been sinless? Has she been pure? Has she been righteous? I mean, growing up as a Catholic, we're kind of we're taught and, and, and told that, well, hold on, she of course is. She found favor because she herself was immaculately conceived? Because one being immaculately conceived can only then conceive an immaculate one. Or that she herself was, was sinless, that she then did not uh, uh, sin and offend God at all. These are, none of these are true. It says, why? The angel says, because the Lord is with you. It has nothing to do with her. She was, she was just a part of God's plan, yes. And you can see this, this like contrast between Zechariah and his lack of faith and, and Mary's faith, right? There is still this willingness of this child to go, okay, all right, well, how is it going to happen? I'm, I'm, you know. But there's this, this, this heart position that she has. But that does not mean that she was sinless or that she somehow was better. It only means that she found the favor of God because God gave her that favor by his grace. That God himself that bestows that upon her. God in his grace and his mercy was with her. Just like it is said that God by his grace and his mercy is with us today. It is not that we have found favor because we are do good works or that we are perfect in our worship or that we adore him correctly or that we have this affection. No, we, despite our sinfulness, despite our treachery, despite our our sinful nature, we find the favor of God only by the grace and mercy of God that he has given us. You have found favor, why? Because the Lord is with you. And you will name him Jesus, and we discussed that a bit last week as we looked at Matthew, that Yahweh is salvation, that salvation will be found in him and him alone. And he will be son of the most high. You know, we hear that phrase, and, and we hear that we, we actually have the benefit of looking back on scripture, right? We have the benefit from our point of view of looking back and saying, oh, son of the most high, son of God. Where for those listening or reading or hearing for the first time, that phrase would have been more like hearing son of the most high, ah, a king. 
One that has been given the mantle by God to be a mediator in God, in God, uh, for God's people to God. They would have heard this, this kingly language there, that he is son of the most high, that he represents God here among God's people. But we, though, know more. We, though, have the benefit of looking back on this and seeing the, the larger picture that not only is this to be a king, son of the most high, but that he is literally the son of God. And it will be given to him the throne of David. Again, back to this Davidic line. But there's going to be a difference between Jesus and David. There's going to be a difference between this king and all the other kings before. He will have a kingdom, and his kingdom will have no end. I don't know if it's because I'm uh, maybe a bit OCD. I'm going to use that word rather than other words that others have described me as. But it comes around the Christmas season. I, I have to watch certain movies on certain days in certain rotations and in certain ways. I just, I don't know. It's not like I grew up with like this great tradition. I don't know what happened. I probably did it. I, I don't know what happened. I don't know. But I have these like movies that I have to go through. I have to go through. I got to watch Die Hard 1 through 3. Four through six or whatever that is, abomination, don't even look at them. But I gotta watch them, have to watch them. You know, I, I've gotta go through those. I've gotta watch the initial three for Star Wars, the initial trilogy. I don't care about the prequels and sequels, but those three, I gotta watch. I have to watch. And then I, I, I don't, I gotta watch The Lord of the Rings. I gotta go through them. And I watch them every single Christmas. And, uh, you know, it's my burden to bear, guys. I miss out on a lot of the setting up for Christmas, and I just get to, you know, watch these movies. But in Lord of the Rings, and listen, if you know me yearly, there's got to be one reference, and here you go. In Lord of the Rings, you've got, you see these people that are longing for their king. They're longing for their king to return to them, that this king would come back and would be on the throne, and that he would set everything straight, that he would lead his people, that he would guide his people, that he would save his people, that he would rule in, in, in justice and in mercy, that he would rule in wisdom. And so they long and they want this king to come back to the throne so that them as a people could be restored. Because as they see and they look and they say, the enemies abound us and we need this leadership in our lives. For those of, for us today, we have enemies in our world and we've got these common enemies as the people of God. First, we've got this ever-increasing hostile world that pushes back, pushes back against the ways of God, that pushes back against how we, uh, how we as believers live and what we say guide us, that as we live by, by, the, uh, by the word of God, they mock us, they criticize us, they try to get us to change how we act, or they tell us, hey, well, hold on, you can't have those views, those are offensive views. Those are oppressive views. Who are you to say what marriage looks like? Who are you to say that there is no such thing as uh, gender fluidity? Who are you to push back against this culture that we together as, as the world have, have agreed upon is okay? We have this world that pushes back against us, this enemy of the world. And, and this world, though, has a lot of temptations and desires that, that as believers, 
we sometimes fall into because of our flesh. We fight against this enemy of our flesh. Where we are called to worship God, adore God, seek after him, and, and yet we find our satisfaction in other things and in other ways. And then we have this enemy, the devil, that stalks around looking for our ruin to tempt us, to lead us astray, to lie to us, to cause us to doubt our faith. What we need is a king to follow, a king to, to look towards, a king that offers wisdom, a king that can guide us, a king that can give us structure and organization. Because as we know, as God's people, as sheep, we all have gone astray. Just like it's the same sort of metaphor here where you've got a sheep with a shepherd. We are a people with, that need a king. A king that gives us that stability, that it doesn't change after change. We know that, that he is unchanging as we sing. That we can trust in him and trust in his ways and trust in his word because he is going nowhere. A king that offers this cooperation, a king that offers this diplomacy and peace between his people. You see, we got this promised king. If you look at 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 8 to 16 says this. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Love that. So they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies... Moreover, the Lord declares that, uh, that the Lord will make you a house and then jump down. Verse 16. And your house shall be your, uh, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. When God makes a promise and he makes a covenant, God keeps his promise and keeps his covenant. And we see it throughout Scripture, this, these covenants that God has made with God's people. I mean, right there in the, in the beginning in the garden, we see this covenant of works that God entered into with Adam and with mankind, that, that we would follow after him, that he would tend the garden, that he would rule over the garden, but that he would not take from the tree. You see this covenant of, of preservation with Noah when you look at the, the rainbow where God says, I will not do that again. This covenant of promise with Abraham, this covenant of law with Moses, and then this covenant of kingdom, this Davidic covenant with David here, that he makes his promise to make a people for himself and to undo this curse of Adam and Eve. The kingdom of God is part of that promise that he has made. And you know, how is God then going to keep his promise when there's no longer a king on the throne after 587? After 587 B.C., there's no longer this king on the throne. And so the people of God are longing, are looking, are wondering, when's this Messiah king coming? When's this king going to rise up? When is God going to fulfill his promise that he made? 
that he made to David, that he made to us, that as we look around and we see it, this is the people of God, this oppression that they're facing, this occupation that they're facing, or this hostile culture that is, that is telling them how they are allowed to worship or what they can't do in the worship, how they are not allowed to, to follow God's ways, but they must follow society's ways. They look around and they say, how, though, is he going to do this? And one must wonder, do you even want God to do this? Because as you look through, there's disappointing examples of kings throughout history, not just in Scripture, but, but in written history. You have disappointing examples. I mean, you think of King Ahab, who married Jezebel. They worshiped Baal and they killed priests. You think of Saul, the first king, that, that he himself, it says the Spirit of God was with him and then the Spirit of God left him. That he no longer had the Spirit of God and he went crazy. Or even David, the one that the promise is made to, the one that they upheld and they looked towards. Here you have an individual that not only lusted and committed adultery, but then murdered to cover up his sin. I mean, these are the examples of kings that we see, these unjust, unrighteous, and sinful kings. But Jesus is no ordinary king. Where those looked after themselves, where they sought after their own good, where they oppressed their people, Jesus serves the people of God. Where kings are corruptible, Jesus is not. He is sinless. He's steadfast. He does not change. While kingdoms change, Jesus will rule forever. And while kings are oppressive, Jesus, though, breaks the chains and offers freedom. He breaks the chains of, of, of sin and death, and he offers freedom to his people. Jeremiah 23, 5-6 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He will deal wisely, execute justice and righteousness in the land. That, those are not the examples that we have in the world today. These unjust and unrighteous rulers that do not deal wisely, that do not execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So this king, this king, Jesus, is our righteousness. That this king pardons us. If we are, and all of the world, see, all the world is subject, is subject to God's authority to Jesus' authority. And when we lack faith and lack trust and lack belief, it's treason when we, when we push back against our God. And not just the world, but us as believers. While we might not formally vocalize that, we functionally live as atheists from time to time. And all then are subjugated and deserve the wrath of God, the wrath of the king. But see, our king pardons us. Just like Mary just like it wasn't Mary found favor in God's eyes, not because of anything within her, but the grace and mercy of God being with her, that he himself bestows it. Here we see as well that God will pardon his people. It says in Jeremiah again, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. He pardons us and then he rescues us. What we are celebrating at the Lord's table just this morning, 
that not only does he forgive us for our sins, but because he is a holy and just God, must still, there must still be the penalty paid for our treachery, for being traitors. And he himself takes that. He rescues us. He himself is our righteousness. That when we could not live a perfect life obedient to God's ways and God's law, God himself took on flesh, lived a perfect, obedient life, and then took on, took on our just punishment. And not only then does he do that, too, that's great news in and of itself, but he doesn't stop there. Our king protects us by sealing us with the Holy Spirit, by sealing us with the Holy Spirit that, that despite our continual tyranny, despite the fact that we continually disobey God, despite that we continually turn, our, turn away from him, that his love never leaves us. His forgiveness never leaves us. Our union with God is secure. Our communion with God, how we interact with God, how we interact in, in our day-to-day -day with God ebbs and flows, but our union will never change. And that means we are completely still justified because of him, because the Lord ourself is our righteousness. He protects us. And that Holy Spirit then convicts us. That's part of that protection. The moment that we are okay with our sins, the moment that we, we no longer are grieved by our sins, is a dangerous moment for any believer. The moment that we don't recognize our tone and our affection, the moment that we don't recognize how we affect other people and how, then how our ways are disobedient to God and we're okay with it, we're not moved by it, we're not grieved by it, is a dangerous place to be as a believer. Conviction is part of that protection that God gives us. Because it means the Lord is with us. And we are served by a king who overcomes. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. You know, daily, daily we win some battles. I lose a lot more than I win, to be, to be honest. And daily, there are, we are battling against our flesh, battling against the world. And I take comfort in knowing that despite my losses, Jesus, King Jesus, won the war. In the end, he has overcome the world, the flesh, the enemy. And this gives us peace. This gives me peace knowing not just like a peace of mind in the sense of my guilt, like I'm no longer feeling that guilt for my sins because I know Jesus has paid that, but it's also this peace in I've got this reconciliation with my, with my father. I have this reconciliation that though we were far off, though we were enemies of God, he has brought us near and forgiven us. We have this assurance and confidence because it's not by my works and my ways. It's not by my hard effort and good works. It's only by the grace and mercy of God bestowing it that he himself, King Jesus, is my righteousness. The Baptist Catechism says this in question 29. How doth Christ execute the office or the ministry of a king? Answer. In subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. See that first? In subduing us to himself. 
that God has called the people to himself, that we, by his grace, come kicking and screaming in a way we don't, we did not desire God, we did not want God, we did not love God, and yet that he changes our heart. He changes our heart of stone and gives us this heart of flesh that beats and seeks after him in subduing us to himself and in ruling and defending us, restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. We need a king, and our king serves us. But we're also ruled by a king. This might be a no-brainer. And I, I don't mean that. I mean that because, like, in, in a negative sense. But there are implications of Jesus as king. And here's one that sounds simple enough, but to struggle for me, and I'm assuming for you. If Jesus is king, that means you are not. If Jesus is king, then you are not king. That Jesus himself gets to set the tone, the standards, and the entry requirements of his kingdom. Too many believers and too many of us struggle in our flesh looking to overtake the throne. Looking to, I mean, uh, Martin Luther once famously said when in his commentary, uh, The Ten Commandments, and looking at the first commandment where he talks about that you are God, that you and you alone are God. And saying, hold on, this is probably, this is the entryway into all the rest of them. Because often, though, when we look and say that God is God and that he is king, then we look at his ways as good and just and rightful and we want to follow those. But the problem is we often come to that and we come to the place of where we ourselves want to be our own gods or we ourselves want to be our own kings. And so then we look at the rest of them, or the rest of the commandments, and say, well, hold on, i got to tweak this a bit to the way I want it, because I am that authority. You see, Jesus is king. And in that means, he, we are his subjects. That means as God's subjects, we owe him this obedience. We owe him this obedience to follow after his ways, to look to his word, to study his words, to see how is it that he wants us to think and to act how is it that he wants us to, to live our day-to-day -day Christian lives, our discipleship lives? As his subjects, then, we owe him this worship and this adoration where we look to him, we adore him. We, we also owe him this thankfulness where we praise him. Really what it comes down to, when we're talking about God ruling in this kingdom, we're talking about kingdom ethics, Right? And a lot of these ethics of the kingdom are countercultural to the world. I mean, look at Luke 22, 25 to 26. This is when the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest among them. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. You see, this is countercultural to what the world tells us today. The world tells us today, you want to succeed, it's dog eat dog. If you want to succeed, you got to be arrogant, proud, you got to take people down a notch. If someone, if someone hits you, you don't just retaliate, you escalate that thing. And in our, our world today, in our Christian culture today, too many believers trade the ethics of the word with the ethics of the world 
when we are called to look at God's word and live by his ways, we trade in his ethic for the ethic of the world. We follow after the ethic of the world because it's easier and faster to use the worldly means to achieve what we decree to be noble goals. I just want to succeed and provide for my family. If I got to cheat a little bit, is that so wrong? If I just fudge these numbers, is that not fine? If I take a little extra off the top, is, does it really affect everybody else? You know, oftentimes we use worldly means to achieve what we deem as noble goals because it's easier. It's easier to, to get ahead faster in that way. I mean, and Jesus preached about these kingdom ethics in, in Matthew 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7. We're not going to go through all of them, but here we'll just look at the beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Living according to the word is difficult oftentimes. But when we don't, we live in this disobedience. We are acting in disobedience to our king, to our king's ways, to our king's law, to our king's standard. And we push against a lot of what we just read there. Part of it's the American individualism. No one's going to tell me how I'm to live my life and to do what I think is best for me. No government, no authority. Ultimately, though, it comes down to a lack of faith in God's ways. Because we lack trust and belief and faith that God's ways are best, that God's ways are good, that his ways are perfect. We lack trust that maybe if God doesn't give it to us, then maybe we just didn't need it. But it's because we want it, we desire it, we think we deserve it. Some of us lack faith in God's ways. We lack faith in our king. And King Jesus will overcome our flesh. You know, right now we've, we, we live in this kind of limbo state, right? We live in this where we've been, we've, we've been forgiven, we're being forgiven, and one day we'll be completely forgiven, right? Like the sense of, another way of putting it, I am saved, being saved, will be saved, right? And that's kind of even what we were talking about last week a little bit. That we live in this spot where right now we're going through the sanctification process. And coming under the authority and rule of Christ is part of that sanctification process. It's part of understanding our place and our position with God. And we overcome this. We're called to this work of sanctification by first studying the word of God. By the means of grace, studying the word of God. And it's going to push back against you. It pushes back to earth. Oftentimes I read the word of God and I think to myself, it'd be easier to do it the other way, Jesus. 
But my thinking must change. My ways must change. My heart must change. My mind must change. And as we study the Word of God, there is the renewing of the mind. But we finally look and say, your word is a lamp unto our feet. When we pray, prayer is difficult for a lot of believers. It's difficult. You know, often when I talk with youth and I talk to teens or young adults or, or even now, you know, adults, I would hear prayer is difficult because I, I don't know, like, is, it's weird. Is he hearing me? Like, am I saying the right thing? Is there, is there something that's going about it? For me, prayer, as difficult as it can be, is all about the posture. It's all about the posture of dependency upon God. I mean, that right there is what we're talking about here is as you come to this posture of prayer, you're depending upon him saying, Lord, I need you. I need you so much. I need you to intervene on this. I need you to guide me. I need you to lead me. I need you to to show me what, what are those areas of my life that need adjusting. Prayer is learning to be completely dependent upon God. It's that posture, that humility as we come before our king. And I mean, think about that as well. The fact that we get to pray and converse and to have this interaction with our God, with our king. The God of the universe that created all things. The God of the universe that rules and reigns. The God of the universe that by him all things hold together. Every breath that you are taking, everything is holding together by his will. And yet he hears you. He hears you. And as you look back at Exodus, even there, where God says, I have seen my people's affliction. I hear their cries. I am moved for them. And now I will act. And he does that for you and for me. That's the God of the universe, the king of the universe that we pray to. As we gather together on Sunday mornings for corporate worship, hearing God's word proclaimed, sung, read, prayed, as we gather in our community groups, there where we're able to, to encourage one another. And then the ordinances, as we partake of the Lord's Supper and in baptism. Brothers and sisters, the promise of a king means the end of our enemies. And as we know now, we now live in this Advent. We live awaiting for the return of our king. We come, we sit there longing, and we ought to be. And I don't, I personally had to do some confessing this week and some heart work on why is it that I don't long as much as I should? I mean, I see a world that's fallen. I see a world that is in need. I see, I see me as well needing this restoration and this forgiveness and, and dealing with this struggle of sin on a daily basis. How is it that I'm not longing for my king? We are called to long for him, for his return, to be looking towards him. And that should then, as we have this viewpoint of looking towards the return of Christ, that should then really propel us into evangelism, into proclaiming the gospel to a lost world. Because we know when Jesus comes, he is coming to bring his rule and his reign. And for some of us, we may find favor because the Lord is with us. For others, it's not. And that should cause us to pause. Because some of us have family and friends, have neighbors, colleagues. We have people in our lives that don't know Jesus And the return of Jesus is judgment for them. 
judgment for them. But for us, we are, we are able to rejoice because our king comes and he overcomes the world, flesh, the enemy. Revelation points to this, this picture of, of Jesus riding in on a horse. And it's a very quick battle. It won't take him long. But we long and look forward to that. And until then, though, we are called to live under his rule daily, longing for his return. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for, for the reminders of, of what does it mean to live according to your rule? What does it mean to, to, to be under your reign? One day we're going to experience it. One day, one day most of us are going to, we're going to experience that in person and, and be able to rejoice in that, Father. But we're also called to be rejoicing in that now and to be following your ways now. Lord, show us in what areas we've, we've pushed back against your rule, where we've pushed back against your reign. Lord, point out in our heart these, these, these areas where we push back we don't want that authority, where we, we push back against your ways because we want to decide what is best for us. Father, forgive us for when we, we neglect to, you, to look to you on major decisions or, or uh, uh, things that are happening in our lives. When instead of seeking your wisdom and your guidance, we think we know better and ought to just do what we feel is best for us. Lord, forgive us. May we constantly look to you towards your rule and your reign. I ask this in your name. Amen.